Namaste and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast where we are exploring the mystical in the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, the host of the Modern Mystic Podcast, and today I am so overjoyed to be welcoming Bill Mahoney, who is a professor of religion at Davison College, and he has written and published extensively on the religions of India and has such an incredible, deep understanding of yogic life grounded in over 50 years of his own spiritual practices. Do you hear that, people? So it's so rare to have a guest who is that steeped in not just knowledge of his level, but also rooted in embodied practices. His books include The Artful Universe, An Introduction to the Vedic Religious Imagination, and most recently, Exquisite Love, Reflections on Spiritual Life, based on Narada's Bhakti Sutra. Bill, welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Well, I can't wait to hear your answer to what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Yeah, the word mystic is a bit ambiguous, not fully clear (laughs) what what it can mean. I mean, various people will have different definitions or understandings or impressions of of what a mystic is or what mysticism is. I like to go back to the original meaning of the word or to the derivation of the word, and it it goes back to the Greek that uh, implies a closing, a kind of a a closing of the eyes or a closing of the lips, and so suggests a, uh, to me, a, a kind of contemplative perspective, a contemplative attitude or a contemplative relationship to the world. The word is also related to the word mystery, and and I like that because there is a sense of, you know, depth and a wonder, perhaps, and a a desire to understand and to know and and to realize and and a yearning and longing for for wisdom. You see, all all of that, to me, is kind of folded into this idea of, of a mystic and of mysticism. Now, to be a little bit more specific, I myself think of the mystical perspective and the mystical view or understanding is that a mystic is is one who, in a sense, closes the eyes and by closing the eyes also, in a sense, opens the eyes. Let me try to explain that a little bit more. A mystic, from the way I see it, from the way I experience it, is able to turn inward and to touch aspects of, of oneself and also to to look out into the world and to see people and to see nature and to see everything <laughs> that is in the world and to to see in a in a way that perhaps others don't that underneath or within all of the particularity of existence there is a single power and presence that links and joins all things in a, in a mysterious way, all right? 
and that this this presence within all beings is unifying and it, it is a is a connecting presence um, and it is greater than any and all of us so so the mystic sees the particular and also sees the particular within the context of an encompassing unifying whole that is greater than all of us. And not only this, but the, uh, the mystic, from the way I define it and experience it, the experience of this presence is an experience of union, of unity with it, and perhaps of communion, both union and communion, because in my experience, this, this presence is, is, in a sense, a sacred divine presence within all things. And by knowing that divine presence within all things, in the interconnectivity of all things, it defines one's understanding of the world and of one's place in it. So the mystical perspective is a unified perspective. Now, throughout history, various religions have talked about what I, this sorts of intuition, and have identified this presence in various ways, this power, in India, it's known as Brahman or Atman, the universal self within all selves. Uh, we can think of it perhaps as the Tao or, or in, in other ways, but it is the one within the many. And philosophers, uh, some philosophers have tended to say, this is a theme that we see in religious and spiritual traditions across the centuries and, and across the cultures. And some people have defined it or described it as uh, philosophia perennis. I mean, the perennial philosophy that sees the one within the man. And that's, that's how I would understand mystic here, okay? Now, the modern part, the modern mystic is, well, how do we and in what way can we live from this perspective in today's world right now? We can use language and teachings and, and perspectives from other periods and other times and other cultures and traditions, and we can bring them right here, right now, and apply them in our own lives as modern mystics. Such a rich and elucidating answer. Thank you. And just to recap some of the true jewels and gems of what you said that I love and it's so fun to have different guests and get their perspective on the same question because the answers are so, you know, wildly different and yet connected, like you're saying, even with this concept. But I love your nuance for so many reasons, one of which is talking about, as you put it, the presence and the power, because I feel like that that word presence is so important. And all of the practices that I talk about on this podcast and all of the true destination of mysticism is to come into presence. And through coming into presence, we then unlock and unleash that true essential power that makes us the most effective in our moment-to-moment day-to-day life. So I just love that word you use, presence, because I feel like it's really 
truly one of the most profound words that we can all focus on, right? Bring ourselves back to presence. And that's the thing about the modern day life, right? At these accelerated speeds and this exponential living where centrifugal forces are pulling us in the million directions due to the, the modern age. Coming back to presence again and again is what plugs us into our power. And then, of course, as you said, so eloquently, when we close the eyes, that root of mysticism, we close the eyes, we close the senses and not really close, but like we close the eyes. So we're redirecting our sensors inward and then they can act as GPSs towards that power and peace. Yeah, and the the closing is not a turning away from the world. I mean, the the closing can be the kind of physical closing, uh, and yet one can also keep one's eyes wide open and enter into the mystery of presence Yeah, and see it in multiplicity, in in outward multiplicity. And and then, I don't want to say subsequently, but then one also knows and intuits that same presence within oneself. And the, and the closing of the eyes is kind of the immersing into it and uh, aligning with it. So important because when we take that time to recollect, to remember is how I think of it. A lot of us, we, for the first time, recognize, you know, so whether it's recognize, recollect, or remember, whatever it is for you, right? Then when we see it within ourselves, then we really can see it in others because I feel like it's only first when we recognize it within ourselves that we come to this world and others with the full understanding of who they are and what this world is. So really profound. People can feel so isolated and so uh, alienated and sort of uh, broken and and can feel that that the world itself is fractured and and in some ways it is. And at the same time, if and when there is the opening to the two presence, then one realizes that one is never absent from presence. And, and that gives one a, a kind of grounding, a kind of solidity that, that anchors oneself within all of the, all the turmoil that, that we can experience in the world. It's so, so well put. Because I feel like even with my students and clients that I work with, It is about that going inward and that closing, if you will, which is really just a sequestering for a temporary period of time. So we fortify ourselves, like you said, right? And then we return more, more clear, strong, and uh, impactful. Amazing. A lot of rewords. Did you notice how many rewords you use? Return, remember, recognize. There's a there's a kind of coming back. Mm Hmm. And I think in some ways that's the mystical perspective is, is coming back, returning, mm. remembering and recognizing. Yeah, really, really, really profound. Thank you. So I am so excited to talk to you about so many things. But I, when I was thinking about where to start, I really wanted to use archetypes and myth as launching point because I've known you since I don't even know. I was trying to think of since when. I definitely met you as a teenager. I don't remember the exact moment. But for sure, the audiences would benefit, particularly with your literary prowess and your professorial expertise on hearing about this, because this 
paradigm of working with archetypes, working with myth, I feel like is really, really becoming popular in the best sense of popular. And when I met you many moons ago, working with archetypes, I'd even love to hear you talk about if you think that's synonymous with working with deities, you know, where that line is that can be gray. But I'd love to hear, please, you speak about how we can work with archetypes. In your view, what are archetypes and for our listeners? How we can work with myth and then maybe some practical examples, please. <laughs> okay. Myth is another interesting word. I'm, I'm sounding like a linguistics person or something like that. But <laughs> it's another interesting word. Um, the original meaning of the word uh, simply means story. Mythos is the Greek word. And through the years, it comes to mean kind of sacred story. The, the stories of, in, in ancient Greece, it was the stories of the gods and goddesses and that sort of thing. So perhaps we could think of stories now, myths, as narratives of, of the kind of intuition of connectivity, of the mm. narratives of, of what it is to connect with the sacred. The, the word myth that mythos uh, came to mean not only story, but kind of sacred story, particularly a sacred story, or what is regarded as sacred story. And so we can think of the, the narratives as telling the story of this intuition uh, or um, immersion or appreciation for interconnectivity. Okay, now that, that sounds kind of abstract, but, but we as human beings have uh, very profound questions about how does existence exist? What is the, the tremendous mystery of existence itself? How, how does it happen? And why is there suffering? And why is there sorrow? And why is there disappointment and discouragement? And, and, and why is there evil? And so, you know, the, the contemplative component of, of human being asks these questions and contemplates them and reflects on, on them. And then in a, in a wonderful com component or aspect of human being, tells stories, adds person to these various kind of questions and dynamics of what it is to exist. So they tell stories of, of sacred beings, of gods and goddesses, <laughs> of devas and devis, who have the same sorts of relationships as human beings in some ways. You know, sometimes they get angry, sometimes they, they get jealous, sometimes they, they fall in love, and sometimes they get angry, fall out of love, you see? And so, in a way, the stories are ways in which human being and human beings express what it is to be human. You know, at one level, we can think of these of stories as telling stories of what's happening out there or up there or down there or something like that. But at another level, we're telling our own stories and who, who we are and how, how we can understand ourselves as told in this story. Now, and that's where I think that we can, we can move toward the language of archetype. The human imagination, there are kind of templates of of what it is to be human. And then the stories themselves kind of narrate these templates. And that's, you know, the child, the hero, the warrior, those sorts of templates, right? And one can, if, if one has this understanding, one can kind of listen to one's own stories. One can turn with, with the closed eyes, as it were, 
listen to the stories that one tells of oneself inwardly and then contemplate them. What is this saying about who I am? What, what character in the story that I tell is me? And, and from a mystic perspective of mysticism, eventually all of the characters are expressions of the self, me. If that's the case, they can be used. You can work with them. You see, you can realize, oh, the, the, I am a hero. And, and how then, knowing that I'm a hero, how can I live in the world? Or, oh, I am a lover. And knowing that I am a lover, how is it that I can be in the world and live in the world? You see, so, that, so the stories give kind of models and paradigms for us. Love that so much. Because as you said, these stories that are sacred and their sacredities in my mind and my experience is that they encompass both our humanity and humanness and then bridge and deliver us to the truth that we are also greater than we could have ever imagined, you know, like a god, like a goddess. Yeah. And it's both. And it's the, so the, the stories and the archetypes and the myth are truly this amazing technology for integrating ourselves really deeply, you know, from a psycho-spiritual standpoint, you know, from the level mm -hmm. of being the most human and our raw basic instincts to then the most elevated aspects of self in the higher realm. So really a really Good. gorgeous elucidation, what you're saying. And can you give an example to those listeners who perhaps haven't had a background in archetypes and working with gods and goddesses of one way someone could work with, say, the goddess Lakshmi or the archetype. I, I recently went to Glastonbury, England. And so I've been in these codes of Avalon and King Arthur and Morgana, and which is new for me, um, doing these more like white Judeo-Christian, <laughs> ironically, codes for me when I grew up in the lands of, you know, more of the tantric, more recognizable Hindu gods and goddess. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, the Irish is, uh, heritage is just full of it, <laughs> just full of it. If I could go to India here, and well, there's just so much there, and, and there's so much <laughs> we could talk about here, but there's a kind of a complex, a, a set of stories, generally known as kind of Purana and Itihasa. It, 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 let me back up for a minute. If you notice that most kind of myths and stories begin with a, some sort of statement, once upon a time. Have, have you noticed that? So that, so that there is this idea that, that the narrative is existing in some time that's outside of this time, but is in some way just exactly like this time. So it, it kind of, it's kind of a collapse of time. It's kind of an eternal time. The, the myth, the story is eternal. And there is a whole set of, of these kind of once upon a time stories that are understood to narrate sacred sacred understandings centered on a figure of Krishna and various lovers. Now, and I mean that in the, in the best sense of the word. I don't want confusion here, all right? So maybe I should say it differently. Uh, narratives between a, a, a lover and a beloved. How's that? And between a beloved and a lover, okay? So stories of, of these, the lover and beloved as, as mother and child, stories of lover and beloved as, as friend and friend, um, uh, a story of lover and beloved as, as servant of a kind and just master. And, you know, we could think of it, uh, particular examples that your listeners may be familiar with, uh, you know, uh, 
Hanuman and I, I mean uh yeah Hanuman as the servant to the kind Rama, you see the bold and brave Rama or or uh, the child Krishna to his mother Yashoda and, and others, Arjuna and Krishna as friends of each other. You see, there are all these stories of different relationships between lover and divine beloved. And, uh, and one can use them as paradigms, as it were, or prototypes, not prototypes, as archetypes, uh, as we were talking about it, and say, well, what part of me is that kind of lover? You know, where in me is the lover who is a child longing for a mother? What part of me is the mother yearning and, and taking care of the child? You see that you can use them as, as well, okay, you know, investigation into one's own nature, you see? And what part of me is, is a friend, a friend to the beloved, the divine beloved? Uh, one of these many types of relationships is the relationship of a lover who is absent from a beloved or when the beloved seems absent from the lover. Sometimes uh, stories of Radha and Krishna, for example, when, when they are separate from each other and, uh, and the feelings that they have for each other in that separation run the whole range of human, human emotion. And, um, and I think it, it can be very powerful to, to feel not only separate from one's beloved, but perhaps separate from love itself. One can tend to perhaps feel there is no such thing as love. And in my life, there is no love. You see, and, and that can be, oh, okay, there, let me explore that. You know, how do I know? And I, I'm, being, I'm placing myself in the position of somebody in here, okay? How do I know? that there is no love. And, and one way that these stories can help, uh, help us here is that we sense that there is no love precisely because we know what love is. We already know what love is and we are feeling absent from it. So if we can return to this realization, we do know that love is real, then that can that can help us in so many difficulties when we're feeling that there is no love. Yeah, really, really profound and very poignant. And I love what you talked about too, because, you know, you're using that theme of love and then several, you know, different archetypes that you mentioned, which I think is so helpful for people because we all have these roles that we play, you know, and, and some of us don't share those roles and some of those roles overlap that we do share. And so I love that you spoke of thank you, love, because that is the root of so much suffering that people feel deprived of in some way or want to work with more or the true power that can heal and uplevel people, love, you know, that, that force. So that's such a great example. And I feel like in my own experience, and I'm wondering if this is your experience, how these archetypes that we can work for. Like I mentioned Lakshmi, so I'll just go for her and she's you know, sitting in front of me right now where I'm looking. So how I have this statue of this goddess and the statue to me represents almost like a mirror that reminds me and reflects back to me the abundance, abundance of you know, material wealth, abundance of health, abundance of spiritual wealth 
So whenever I gaze upon her, and sometimes even this morning I was meditating with her, that statue or that memory of her or that studying of her stories or however you want to physicalize the practice of working with that archetype. You know, I have a, a, a client who has, you know, Lakshmi on her shirt, right? And then she looks in the mirror, right? And she works with Lakshmi, it re- reminds her. But this mirror idea of that, the energy, you know, in the y- yogic tradition, my understanding too is it's even deeper than just archetype, you know, but that's, a, that's yeah. another thing we can get into or not. But that idea that this thing that we're looking at, focusing on and studying in the way of a statue or in the way of an energy or in the way of a story acts like then a mirror to remind us and extract from us that same energy and those qualities of abundance and etc. Yes, yes, exactly. That that in a sense, they are murtis. They're known as murtis, which um, statues. A murti is is a is a physical form, a a, a physical object, you know, an objective form of of divinity, or uh, in this case, maybe the the dimensions or the the forces and powers of of uh, well being, health, uh, goodness. Okay, um, and that that. The the uh, the image is the is an embodiment, literally a solidification of of these forces, these powers, and and as a murti, as an embodiment, one can look onto it, one can gaze onto it, and uh, and in in the way that you've been talking about it, remember it, remember the presence of gracious well-being, remember the power of benevolence and care and concern for others. And then remembering it, then the, the process is then to then kind of re- internalize it and and kind of plant that murti, embody it within one's own being. By doing that, by kind of honoring the external Lakshmi, one then fosters and nourishes one's own good, one's own benevolence and one's own generosity. Mm, I love the, those words you used you, about planting like a seed and then you use the the word nourishing like we do plants and watering mm-hmm. that such a such a beautiful beautiful articulation of that and and I think that when it comes to working with archetypes and myths for our listeners respond to every call that excites your spirit as Rumi said so like you know, to me, it's yeah. a matter of maybe for you, it's not Indian, you know, gods or goddesses at all. Not long ago, I was working with, you know, Yamana, Yamaya, you know, of the African tradition. So, mm-hmm. you know, we yeah. live in this incredible Aquarian age where there's all this information. So as modern mystics, we can really think about what Bill said, contemplate and then think, okay, what's my perhaps, you know, familial lineage? And does that excite me? The Irish roots obviously excite Bill and they excite me. <laughs> you mentioned Maybe it's a Chinese, you know, tradition and Kuan Yin and compassion, right? So people can do research and really what archetypes are speaking to you? What, what are jumping out to you? And I think that I'm so passionate about mysticism in the way of what really lights us up as opposed to, you know, thinking of it like a chore or something dogmatic. So. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I agree completely with you. It, it's illuminating. It, it's uh it it lights us up yes it's not a chore it's a delight that 
is really important to um, talk about. So let's just start and go into that is this idea that the mysticism is a delight and and how it can be such because, you know, you and I share the stream of Tantra and, you know, I certainly bow and honor my yogic lineage of Tantra, which really holds that, that we can use our modern day lives as gateways to experiencing our own divinity and that we can use tangible things and such and that it also should be fun and that life is a bummer. No, life is a gift and there are all these challenges like you spoke of and we have these existential questions then about why is there suffering as you said and why things have to be and yet the fundamental reality that life is a gift. So would you mind talking about Tantra? Because something that happened when I was a child on this tantric path, when I met you many moons ago, is that people would always say to me when I would mention very shyly, because no one at that point really was talking about yoga in Pennsylvania where I grew up or anything. And if I would mention, you know, something about yoga, people would always say to me, oh, you're a Buddhist. (laughs) And I remember sometimes being like, no, and then trying to explain as like an 11 year old and then sometimes just like being like, you know, not even responding with accuracy. And so I feel like Tantra and the awareness of this lineage has started to burgeon, you know, particularly the last, I don't know, 15 years and become more in the collective consciousness in the collective field. But yeah, would you mind speaking to please, you know, what is Tantra to you? How Tantra is this embodied practice to me that's very modern because it's very much about being in the world. And then also how it's different from Buddhism, which that could be a whole episode in itself. I understand that question. <laughs> the word Tantra itself originally means a, a loom. It's a mechanism for weaving. You may know that and your, your, your listeners may know this, but uh, uh, something that makes a fabric of, out of a weft and a woof, you know, and then comes to refer to a weaving of philosophy and practice, the, the kind of integration of philosophy and practice. And, um, and the, the philosophy, and very, very briefly, the philosophy is that the powers and structures and dynamics that create and support and transform the world, the whole universe and everything in it, those very same forces and powers and structures and dynamics are within each one of us. And that we are kind of woven into the, to this fabric of the universe, as it were. And that if and when one can identify the various forces and structures and powers within the universe, one can identify them within within oneself, and within oneself, one can then see them within the universe, right? And in in Tantra, being uh, Tantra now uh, from India, rather than the more Chinese or Tibetan or whatever, tends to locate two primary kind of forces and structures and possibilities. Very, very generally, okay, and it, and it identifies these as Shiva and Shakti, right? And in my mind, Shiva is the unlimited, unbounded, infinite potential—the potential to be anything. 
the universe arises because it has the potential to arise. If there were not the potential to arise, there would be no universe, all right? Shakti is the power of manifestation. Shakti is the, is the force by which potential becomes actual, by which potential becomes manifest. And, and so from the tantric perspective, the whole world and everything in it and all events and moments and relationships, <laughs> all of that is Shakti. All of that is the manifestation of what could possibly be. You see, uh, the whole world is Shakti as, as manifestation of, of the potential. Okay, now that is, uh, the Shakti is often associated with feminine power. Shiva is often associated in some ways as masculine. So from a tantric perspective, we could say that the whole world is the goddess. You know, see that everything is the goddess. And, and that being, if that being the case, the goddess is also within me. You see, <laughs> and so there are meditation techniques and dances and artistic designs and hand gestures and all these different ways of of being embodied, being the divine as a body. You see, I'm, I'm perhaps being a little bit too vague here, but um, in terms of of a tantric perspective, then tantra is a very life affirming perspective that says that that life itself, existence itself, is a good thing. And within all of the complications and disappointments, existence itself remains at itself a good thing, right? So Tantra is then the aligning with it and the transforming of uh, that which constricts one's understanding of, of the goodness of existence and opens it up and, ex and expands it. Right? It's different from some other spiritualities and, and some yoga spiritualities that, that say existence is actually not a good thing and existence is a trap and we need to turn away from the world. We need to turn from, from engagement with the world. You say, Tantra says, no, turn toward it, engage the world. And in that engagement, find your own true deep freedom within it. Yeah. Yeah. And through that engagement, right? Truly, it's through being of this world, like you said, and in this world that mm -hmm. distinguishes it. And you just gave such a, you know, really helpful elucidation to what could be literally a whole podcast, like dedicated to that topic. <laughs> so when it comes to Tantra, I think this is a really opportune moment to speak of how Sometimes, particularly in the Western world, there has been an association with Tantra and sexual activity. And, you know, even as a child, sometimes I would be embarrassed. You'd see Tantric sex shops, or if you mention that, people would think it is that. And it's my understanding, though, you could elucidate much more how Tantras being about and the practices are about being in the world and using embodied experience to really unify oneself. And as you said in your first answer, connect oneself to the divine that sometimes mundane quote unquote activities such as you know sex or things that would be of a certain householder lifestyle were perhaps shunned by some people. And Tantra 
in some sense, you know, got a quote unquote negative rap perhaps by the monks of India, etc. So I don't know if you could speak a little bit to that as well. It's ripe for misunderstanding. We, we can say that. There, it, uh, the popular understanding of, of this is, I think, in some ways misled or, or it goes, goes in a direction that is not necessarily consistent with the, with the ideology here. Okay. So, so in part, if, if I can try to, uh, try to put it into a, a larger context, Tantra, as, as we've said, is, is a world generally now, there are exceptions, but generally is a world affirming idea, ideology that says existence is good. Okay. Tantra in general tends to say that the narratives that, that express this idea tend to identify masculine and feminine components or male and female components of, of universe. It's all one. It's universe, you say. But, and that the dynamics of the, of the world are in some way the dynamics of masculinity and femininity, masculine and feminine, okay? And one way to participate in that dynamic from an embodied perspective is through sexual activity. Now, from the perspective of Tantra, that sexual activity is understood to be sacred. It is, and that is the whole point. It's, it's sacred activity and it's very prescribed. It, it, it takes place in, in situations that are, that are not in any way, you know, kind of licentious or exploitative in any way. It's an inner attitude that holds that embodiment and the, and the powers and forces within embodiment can be honored. Really, really helpful. Really, really helpful. And I love how you spoke about that with Tantra because that understanding of how it's our inner attitude, how we do anything, how we do what we do matters, you know? So it's like whether mm -hmm. we're making love, whether we're making food for the people we love, whether we're doing our job, right? It's that circling back to your brilliant word of presence presence how we do what we do matter and uh thank you mm -hmm. for really encapsulating this huge complicated philosophy by those beautiful words and i love how you put it that existence itself is a good thing because we can go out on so many tangents and we'll continue to do that but mm -hmm. that's such a helpful even when i say those words right and i'm sure our listeners will just feel like the truth of that or relaxed or soothed or something by that. So that is really such a helpful and concise and pithy, brilliant answer to this huge philosophical, you know, question. And and just to circle back to the question I asked about Buddhism to point out my understanding, and I think this is very helpful, which actually is tantric to say of me, but the perspective that Buddhists really hold is the truth to some extent, and I have so many Buddhist friends that I honor and love and so many Buddhist listeners, but this cornerstone perspective that life is suffering, right? And that that is very much a return to concept that really is the foundation of Buddhism. Would you concur with that? Well, Certainly, it's known as the first noble truth. Of, uh, <laughs> Gautama Buddha 
that holds you know, and his initial followers says that's the first truth, sarvam dukkham. All, all that is is suffering, and suffering is. But see, th- that can be understood in, in different ways, and and the way that that I would suggest people think of it is that it's not necessarily that everything is suffering. It is to say that suffering is everywhere, and I hear a difference there. That means that all people suffer. And that, that all beings suffer. Sarvam means everything, all. Sarvam dukkham, right? And until one realizes that, one is naive or selfish, self-centered, you see. So it's an acknowledgement. And Patanjali uses the, the same word dukkha in his Yoga Sutra. I mean, the, the yoga is, is in a sense a way to, to ease a sense of dukkha, you see. Um, so yes, I uh, I would say, you know, in a Buddhist context, yeah, sarvam dukkham, all is suffering. Okay. Now that said, the Buddhist context says, well, that suffering comes from something; it arises from something, and one, and there are there are different things that it, that different ways it's it's said to arise, but but one is is through not knowing and not recognizing the interconnectivity of all things. It's known as pratityat samutpada, the, the kind of the co the co-arising um, of all things. The, Could you say the, that word again too, please excuse me, for, <laughs> for the listeners. I missed the Sanskrit word. Pratitya samutpada. Ah, pada. The, the, uh, uh, samutpada means arising together, and pratitya means uh, kind of sequential, almost in a way. Mm, that, lovely. Um, that things, everything arises in a context. So one is not separate from others' suffering, and we are all arising together in a sense. And I think more—I don't want to say deeply, but maybe perhaps subtly—we don't see the connections between between things. We don't see how thoughts lead to actions and how actions then lead to to sorrow and suffering you see so that so that in the the idea is is understand and and know this interconnectivity and then uh that's the third noble truth is well there's something there's a way to get to solve this To bring an end to suffering, and then is, and then the fourth noble truth is the is the, what's known as the noble eightfold path. So a whole set of of practices that one can do to to ease the suffering that everybody experiences in the world. Yeah, so helpful. Would you mind saying in order the four noble truths? Because I think it would be really helpful just listing them for the listeners. Because <laughs> okay. there'll be some people taking notes and they won't. You know, okay. I know them, you know them, but not everybody knows them. Okay, this is this is Buddha's Buddhist teaching now, a Buddhist perspective. The first is that the world is permeated with suffering. That that, that anything that comes into existence will, anything that is born will, in some way, suffer. And there are all kinds of suffering. There's the physical suffering, you know, the day to day suffering, physical pain, disease, illness. But also the suffering of disillusionment and hope and, and uh, hopelessness and fear and doubt. All of this, that this is part of what it is to be a, a conditioned being. Uh, that means somebody who is conditioned by the by the dynamics of existence itself. All right. So everything is suffering. That's that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is there is a source. There is an origin. It's known as samudaya. There is a rising forth of this dukkha, this suffering. 
And primarily, uh, it's, it's due to not knowing this interconnected nature of all things. And not knowing, um, well, first of all, not knowing that suffering is ubiquitous, <laughs> and then not knowing that there is this uh, interconnectivity and dependent co-origination of all things. And so then the third noble truth, that, that second noble truth is known as samudaya, the arising. Third noble truth is, um, well, there is an end to it, nirodha. There is a cessation to this suffering, or there can be a cessation to it. And the cessation to the suffering is to kind of wake up to the uh, to the interconnectivity of all things. I keep coming back to that word to the interbeing, to the interbeing of, of all being, to wake up to that and to see how one's actions contribute to one's suffering and how one's actions might might contribute to other people's sufferings, you see, and to and to then kind of say, well, there's a way to end that. I don't need to do that. I don't, I don't need to live that way. So then the fourth noble truth is, well, there's a path. Marga, there is a path. It's what's known as the Noble Eightfold Path, which right livelihood, you know, right thought, right. Um, you, you, your listeners will probably know the Noble Eightfold. Yeah, path. and they can they can Google it if not. There's so many resources, and then of course, you know, in the yogic tradition, there's the the eight limb path. So many of mm -hmm. our listeners will know that. But if you're more oriented in the yogic tradition, you know, then you can look at the eight limb path, and both of them delineate a sequential and practical ladder, if you will, of spirituality that one can follow rung by rung. And, and then if you're skilled in the path and, and then even more tantric, you can freestyle them. And there are all sorts of different ways to, to think about it and to work with it. But there, there are, you know, these prescriptive paths, you know, that people can, yeah. can do yes. to literally return to what you're saying the experience of the truth and the remembrance and the recollection of the closing of the lips, closing of the eyes, and in doing so, the remembrance. So the mm -hmm. way that we do that is through practical paths and, and steps. You know, the yes. way that we wake yeah. up. And I loved how you said the word about waking up because that's it. There's this irony how when we close the eyes <laughs> and take that time okay. to yeah. remember who we are. And as you said, presence, come into presence and find that presence. And in doing so, finding our peace, finding our power, like you talked about the Shakti power and the, and the Shiva, the potentiality, all those Ps then through practices, that is how then we can open the eyes and then wake up. So, yeah, so yeah. many threads yes. that you just beautifully wove like a tantric loom, <laughs> tantra, as he said, meaning to loom. And um, thank you for that really, really profound uh, discussion about those things. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we touched on because I've heard you talk about this a little bit, and I know, I know that you love, is poetry and the arts and how they go hand in hand with spirituality. Because, mm. you know, there are many reasons one could, you know, pontificate on why, and I'd love to hear your pontifications. But to me, they all require love, they all require discipline, and then our creative energies. And so could you please elucidate the connection between 
the arts, spirituality. I know particularly Theravada Buddhism and Vedantic, you know, traditions have, uh, you know, connections to romantic poetry and expressions of that. But you freestyle, you go, and I want to hear your thoughts about all that. <laughs> well, um, let's go back to uh, the, the beginning of our conversation where we, where I kind of defined a mystic perspective or mysticism. And as part of that, there, I, I wanted to suggest a kind of um, the intuition, the, the ability to see things that may uh, otherwise remain kind of hidden. So the mystic, in a way, is a seer. A mystic is a visionary. And in India, if we want to return to India for the time being, you know, in, in, in ancient India, ancient mysticism, if you will, um, seers were able to uh, to look at the world and, and you know see the trees and the mountains and the rivers and the sun and the moon and the stars and and they saw these objects uh, and w could sort of see more deeply into them. W within the objects were divine powers. It was a kind of a, a a divine presence within each one. All right. They were known as devas and devis, gods and goddesses, as it were. So, so for these seers, you know, the world was was a, a, a was a setting for innumerable gods and goddesses. And then, with this vision, they they sang songs of praise to the gods and goddesses. You see. Um, and those songs of praise were put in 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 verse form and in met metrical form, and they could we could say they're poems. They're known originally as suktas, well, beautiful statements, as it were. Um, and so, so in a way, the the origin or the rise of poetry is is the is the expression or the response to a vision of of the world, right? And I think that's true for poetry right down to, you know, this morning. <laughs> poets, are, poets can see things. Poets can see things in ways perhaps that others don't initially see, but then hearing about it can see it themselves, can recognize it. But see, Now, the, the difference between a poet and others uh, is that the poet can put it into words, right? And, that's, and that makes the poet... Uh, uh, you know, in a sense, kind of participate in the creative process and to align it, align himself or herself with creativity as 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 a whole, right? And here I come back to um, to India again to this to the mystical vision. Part of what these seers see or saw is not only a divine presence within all things, but but this connection that, that I'm talking about, um, that is understood to be a, or, or seen to be a kind of dynamic principle of integration, a dynamic principle of harmony. And, and they, uh, these ancient seers, poets, uh, called this ritta. It's a Sanskrit word, ritta. And if you say that Sanskrit word, ritta, you can hear the word art in it. Mm. And you can also hear the word ritual. You can, you can hear these words of, of somehow seeing the world as sacred and responding to it and putting your response in words. 
You see, that's that's the Kavi, that's the poet, that's the that's the singer, right? Now it could be in 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 our in modern times, you know, that that one sees is painful and and destructive and and one sees it. And one then puts that vision into words, you see, and in putting it into words articulates its power. And then readers can see it in the same way. And, and, uh, and the poem can draw forth from within the reader that same intuition. And the same is true for visual artists. You see, the, the, the visual artist puts into, into physical, visual form, visual shape, the intuitions of, of well, what is the world and can do so either in an abstract way or a realistic way. But, but I see the artist, the visual artist, the poet, as as one who participates in in the in what I'll call the divine act of creativity, uh, the, the kind of principle of creativity and transformation and and uh, purification. Um, it's the artists who who help us do that. Mm, that's such an effulgent answer and I just feel like shed so much light for no doubt our listeners and myself thinking about creativity in that way and I got the chills because I was even thinking with your words for you are a wordsmith and you're a word artist for sure I started having these feelings of the truth of how as mystics our life is the masterpiece if we choose to make it such and how mm -hmm deeply evocative art is and can be for mm -hmm. people and how it really mm -hmm. as you were speaking I really had that feeling osmotically how art touches and stirs our souls right and when we're talking mm -hmm. about mysticism we're talking about our souls right the undying total common denominational part of ourself that is as you said so beautifully connected to to me and you and all of us and so mm -hmm. art really does the same thing. It, it, it really, I feel like, conjures up within us that same place. So I love mm -hmm. that answer so, mm -hmm. so much. <laughs> One of the last things I hope we could speak about, because I love how you talk about this, and this is a word I feel like is pretty colloquial in the Western world relatively, at least in many circles, of dharma. I feel like that's something like a lot of people have heard that word dharma, you know, karma, maybe more, but dharma. And would you mind speaking of this word dharma that, you know, is from India? And uh, I'm not even going to say anything because I just want everyone to hear you say everything. Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, -A, in case the reader, your listeners don't know. But the, the basic meaning of the word I, I like to look at words. I like to look at the original meaning of words because that Me opens up the world. And I love how you but, teach that um, way. The basis of the word dharma has something to do with support, that which supports something, upholds something. So, so a column sometimes, an architectural column is sometimes described as dharma because it supports the ceiling. So with that idea of support, it, it comes to mean actions, human actions that support the world. And I like to think of it as actions that support the integrity of the world. And by integrity, I mean something to do with 
integration, support actions that integrate, actions that integrate what can otherwise be experienced and known as, as a disintegrated world, a broken world, okay? And the idea that is then that, that there are ways of being in the world, uh, activities, if you will, that we can undertake that support the world and bring integration. And um, by doing this, we, we act from a stance of, of integrity. We, 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 are, we, we act with integrity, right? Dharma as integrity. Oh, let me just go off on a sideline here. Buddhist use of the word dharma is a little bit different. It's, it has the same root, but it refers to sacred teachings. The dharma is, is, are the teachings uh, that support awakening and support enlightenment. It's a slightly different use of the word dharma. But, uh, but in the Hindu context and, the, and the, uh, generally the Indian context, dharma is, is a, that set of responsibilities that, has, that one has to help support the world. And I like the word responsibility because it, it, it implies a kind of response that, that one sees a, the brokenness of the world and responds to it. And that becomes one's uh, action in, in support of integrity, integration. Okay? In the larger Indian context, each one of us is said to have our dharma, our contribution, our, our, our responsibility to the world. Right? So a child's dharma is different from a, an adult's dharma. You see. A student's dharma is different from a, a soldier's dharma. And they may overlap, but, but there are some distinctions, you see. And so dharma affirms this idea of particularity and uniqueness, that each one of us has a responsibility and each one of us has a contribution. Uh, that's known as dharma particular dharma. But within that, there are universal qualities that everybody is to cultivate. This is known as sadharana dharma, universal dharma. And those include uh, attitudes such as the unwillingness to do harm to others, ahimsa, uh, truthfulness, uh, patience, um, forgiveness. All of these are qualities that uh, steadfastness, um, courage. All of these are, are qualities that that bring integrity, and and in bringing integrity, help integrate uh, a broken world. Mm, so great! There's so many brilliant words and concepts that you just spoke of, but I love how we keep, it's so tantra, right? Meaning to loom, to thread. We keep kind of threading back to, to mm -hmm. points and words that were used before in this beautiful weaving of a conversation, the word integration. You know, we spoke of that earlier and about the importance of mysticism and, and, and integrating, you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of things we spoke of. But there are many things you could check off the list, listeners who are listening, including our own our own time of remembrance of who we are, including the suffering that life does have suffering and, and, and these existential questions. And now you're speaking of, you know, this beautiful topic. And I just love how you spoke of that and how also you spoke of 
the uniqueness of our own dharma. And I feel like sometimes this words, especially with my coaching clients, they'll come to me often and be like, okay, what's my dharma? You know, let, or I do astrology chart readings. What, what am I supposed to be doing? And I'm curious to you as a philosopher that obviously just brilliantly, you know, spoke of it ideologically and yet too as a practitioner integrating those in your answer to my question, which is when people say to me, like, what's my dharma? You know, I feel like some people, for sure, they are, like, say, a teacher, you know, and their whole life they've been teaching. And that's really, you know, their primary, quote unquote, dharma. I mean, many people, you know, are, are using it interchangeably for career. And as you already spoke of, it's there's more subtlety than that and more nuance and more levels to that. But sometimes I work with people and in a practical way, start to look at different things roles they play in their life and then really look at okay you had this job and then you had this job and then you do this you know as a parent and then you do this and when you start to look at the different things that they've done in the way of work in the world and the different ways that they are in relationship there can be like a common denominational dharma meaning like if you're a teacher you're here to wake people up some teachers okay, might good. be here to wake people up. That's like actually their dharma and they wake their spouses up because they, you know, tell the truth a lot. And then they wake their students up because they're, you know, the way that they teach. Whereas like another teacher could have still be a teacher, but have like a different energy. So I've been thinking about dharma in this way lately. I'm curious as a practitioner, you know, and, and then, you, you know, in your life experience, ways that you think about dharma in day-to-day -day life particularly with i guess and i'm speaking of like that idea of so many people yearning to know what their dharma is and their career is and then going deeper than that even the ancient uh, sources of the idea of dharma say uh, generally hold define dharma as a function as a social function Mm -hmm. merchants and warriors and priests you see that kind of social function and that that when that one's dharma was was uh, in a sense determined by one's parents what what was what did they do so so it it becomes kind of familial and and uh, social and so in that sense i don't mean to sound lighthearted but in that sense that people had it easy they kind of knew what their dharma was you know that my dharma is to do da 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 to do this it's a little bit more difficult in in these times I think probably an initial response I might have to to people, those who you coach and teach and others, I think probably the approach, the dharmic approach is in any given situation to ask of oneself, what is it that I can do in this situation such that there is more integrity in the world? What is there that I can do in this in this situation right now that can bring less suffering to that person and to me at the same time. The possibilities are infinite, aren't they? Because the, the situations are infinite. But, but I think that question can kind of return to one's mind. Given the situation that presents me here, what is it that I can do to make the world a better place? And that will be your dharma. Love it. And it brings me back to your beautiful word 
of responsibility linked to dharma like what mm-hmm. is our ability mm-hmm. to respond in this moment right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it can change it may stay consistent or it may change but i think for in this modern world that's the question that you know what what can i do how can i respond right now right here and we can only do that full circling back to when we're in presence right when we're really yeah. in that deep space of sourcing ourselves not from the place of the past not from the place of the future not from the place of our reactivity but deeper deeper like you're saying from that integrated mm-hmm. place of presence when we're remembering who mm-hmm. we are really at our essence mm-hmm. so mm, so juicy so good well i was wondering bill if you would be willing to punctuate our conversation together with either a brief minute or two meditation or practice or benediction or just something to close our time in a really sweet and profound way as this conversation has been. Together in this setting, this virtual setting, this podcast, if we can think of ourselves as community, as together, remaining completely ourselves in our own particularity, in our own situations, may we also be together. And in our being together, may we extend that connectivity to all others and to the natural world. And as we sit in our togetherness, may we wish for others, may all beings be free of suffering. May all beings awaken to the wonder and mystery of existence. May all beings know joy. Om Tat Sat. May this be so. Such a gift and, and really, really so affirming. Thank you. Very, very uplifting, this whole conversation, and particularly that profound offering. So really, really fantastic. Bill, where can folks find out about you your books, I have both of them on my shelf, and uh, <laughs> your work in this world. Probably the easiest access is to my website, which I will say, as of this recording right now, is quite out of and quite antique. <laughs> it's kind of kind of embarrassing. It needs to be reworked, and that's part of my upcoming project is is to do that. But my website is WK Mahoney. W.K. Mahoney. My, my name is William Callie Mahoney, W.K. And Mahoney is spelled M-A-H-O-N-Y. Um, many families spell the, that name with an E in it. We do not. Okay, so it's W-K-M-A-H-O-N-Y dot com. 
that's the easiest. And as you go to it and, and you look at it and say, well, this was designed maybe in the medieval period, <laughs> realize that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be working on it, updating it. But there is a, there's a schedule there. There's a, a tab where you can press to, to um, be on a mailing list and that sort of thing. Fabulous. There's also a tab that goes to my books, how to order my books. Great. Yeah. Great. Yeah, your books are so nourishing and so brilliant. So I definitely would call people to, to check out those. And I am so excited for my Mystic members because Bill has so generously offered a selection from his published work. So for all my monthly members, you will be getting that really lovely and inspiring gift from Bill. Thank you, Bill. And if you aren't a Mystic yeah. monthly member yet, head on over to modernmystic.love and support this podcast while supporting yourself. You get my entire yoga meditation mystic hack video user-friendly platform that includes all sorts of phenomenal discounts and practices waiting for you there. I also offer intuitive coaching as well as astrology readings, which I call psyche soul mapping. So Check that out, modernmystic.love. And lastly, I just opened up Patreon. So if you want to contribute directly to this podcast, you can become our patron for only $3 a month at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove. Every dollar is appreciated. And definitely don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well. Bill, you are just such a wealth of wisdom and just knowledge. And um, yeah, I just honor all of that in addition to your decades of practice, which really make that knowledge so potent. And I know our listeners can feel that through the Shakti podcast waves connecting us all. So thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing that wisdom. Thank you for having me. And I do send all my best wishes to you and to all those listening. Mm, namaste. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast platform you use. It is so appreciated. Also, check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can find information about my very exciting monthly mystic membership. My members have unlimited access to a robust video library, which includes short videos that are easily digestible sharing practical ways to integrate mystical living into your day-to-day -day life. These compelling videos cover topics such as how to ground, protect, and grow your energy, how to develop your psychic abilities, how to connect to your spirit team, shadow work, inner child work, tarot cards, lots of Western astrology, of course, in addition to syncing up with the rhythms of nature and so much more, I've gotten so much positive feedback that these videos are game changers for folks. Also included in the membership are over 100 alignment-based yoga classes of all different levels. 
meditation, and breathwork classes. So you can work from the inside out or the outside in and up level yourself as you become the next version of you. Not to mention my Mystic members get all sorts of bonus content and discounts from my visionary podcast guests. So check out modernmystic.love and take a peek there as there's a free sampling of some videos waiting for you. Lastly, if you are looking for some conscious conversation and compelling community, check out also our private Modern Mystic podcast Facebook group. Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste. Namaste.